So our reading from today is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, and this is from the English Standard Version. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We have been celebrating uh, various seasons of the church calendar for many years. If you're newer here, uh, some of them may be a little weird or funny to you. Uh, I assure you, they're not weird. Um, They are peculiar in that they're different season to the next, but uh, they're rich. And the celebration of those seasons, I think, is something that can be uh, very heartwarming. I I alluded to earlier in the service a uh, season that happens before Christmas, which you may or may not know about, called Advent. And in Advent, it is a time of preparation for Christmas. We, We intentionally celebrate in such a way as to prepare our hearts so that Christmas would be all that we should make it out to be. That it is, it is the arrival of light into the dark world. And so we, we take that time to prepare our hearts. Likewise, before we celebrate Easter, we have a season that the church established years ago. It's not a, it's not a biblical thing. It's, it's an extra biblical thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And therefore, uh, we, we take that time to prepare for the events that we remember and celebrate during Holy Week, that is, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. The, the reason for Lent is that our hearts are fickle. One moment we're shouting Hosanna, the next moment we're shouting crucify, right? And so we take this time to prepare and to, uh, to set our, our lives in order, not that we would receive from God. We don't earn anything from God. If you're, if you're fasting during Lent, make no mistake, you are not earning merit before the Lord, but you are positioning yourself to receive more from him. It's making space in your life uh, to, you're carving out a place to commune with God. You are not earning God's love or God's grace. 
So I just want to give that as a caveat for those who are are possibly thinking about fasting during Lent. Um, don't don't think, and and I hope we'll see that uh, in today's message. Don't think at all that you are receiving from God in in that you're earning your your grace. You are not. You are merely preparing your life or setting up your life to receive more from Him. It's freely given. Uh, Lent is not a somber season. It's not a a season by which uh, you get depressed and all introspective. Sure, we focus on our sin. We repent during this season. It's a season of repentance, but it's not done in such a way as to uh, make you a woe is me character. Uh, so I just wanted to explain a little bit of that uh, as we as we move into this season. So last week we had talked about the transfiguration. Jesus goes up to the mountain and his glory is on display there. Moses and Elijah appear with him. They're conversing about what's about to happen to Jesus. And so as we're marching in the year, we are going and heading towards that time of Easter. There, Jesus had just last, uh, in our reading last week, he had just said to the disciples for the first time, the son of man must suffer, must be handed over three days later, he'll, he'll raise again. Uh, he had just announced that, and so now we turn in focus and we're headed in a straight line towards Holy Week. Uh, and so everything that we read about is going to be a demonstration of our sin, the things that were necessary uh, to be removed that Christ uh, took away, and also focusing on the greatness of his uh, solution. When, whenever we focus on problems as Christians in, in repentance or, or, or setting up our hearts to worship the Lord rightly, we never focus on them and ignore the solution. We always must remember that Christ came to save sinners of whom you and I were the, the foremost or the chief most. It's never an introspective season in which we just kind of spiral and get sadder as the days go on. No, the reason Lent is now at the time in the calendar is because the days are getting brighter throughout the year, as evidenced by our Congress's wonderful decision to have daylight savings time. So the, the idea is that the days are growing brighter and brighter, and so we are adjusting to the world around us. And that gets in, that touches on a little bit of what I want to talk about today, about decoration and um, celebration. So we're going to look at a few things in this passage and, and one or two before we get into the passage. The idea of seasons and celebrations, I, I've briefly talked about what Lent is. We're going to talk about it in a little bit more detail. Uh, we're going to talk about the nature of the temptation that Jesus Christ faces in these uh, re in the reading today, but also the nature of every temptation. This is a mirror by which we see all temptation we're going to look at the individual rebuttals that Jesus brings forth to overcome the temptation of Satan. First is that you require spiritual nourishment. And to some degree, all of these three uh, elements that we're going to look at are um, kind of a, a macro view of what the season of Lent reminds us of. That we're to be holy unto the Lord, that we're to trust God, that is, we're not to be anxious, we're not to tempt God, we're not to attempt to manipulate him. And then finally, we're going to look at Christ's victory. Again, it is not enough for you to be convinced of your sin. You must also see that there is a remedy. If you alone focus on your sin without any understanding of the cross of Christ, that, that God in his grace came to save you, you will despair. And that's not, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that you are a sinner and that there is a savior, not that you're just a sinner alone. So uh, I see many people, many people who are beginning to come into the celebration of different seasons, they get the, the 
kind of nature of the season as a season of repentance, right? And then they kind of focus on just that. That's not at all what the season of Lent is. The season of Lent is a time of celebration. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of humbling yourself before God. And when I, when I say celebration, it's not just joyous celebration. So much of our culture is only joyous celebration and very little somber celebration. But I'd like to submit to you that uh, whenever you see a president of the United States pass away or, or maybe a, a head of state of another country, there is a celebration. There's a procession. There is a service that is around commemorating that person's life. Uh, many, many people uh, told me that when, who was it, Kate and um, who was her, the prince? Kate? William, Kate and William, they stayed up all night to watch it because it was airing on, you know, the British time. There was a celebration around that wedding. Likewise, although de-emphasized in our culture, there is celebration around things that aren't joyous. There's celebration around death for the Christian because we believe in the world to come. Likewise, the celebration that we do in Lent, though it's not necessarily giddy and happy, it is still a celebration. It's a remembrance. It's an occasion. So man is uh, has an essential element of his being or his person in that man is a decorator, man is a celebrator. Everything in life that has any sort of significance is given a status, uh, and that status usually attends to or it surrounds or it relates to the things that are happening. Uh, I, I got the wonderful privilege of uh, talking to uh, Jordan Freshour's parents last night, and um, Jordan had a little birthday, and, and uh, Bertie, and we went out, and I got to talk to his mom, and one of the things that I love about Jordan's mom is that uh, Cindy Freshour, she is the world, in my opinion, one of the world's great over-decorators. <laughs> if you have never been to her house, um, Maybe you should ask the fresh hours to invite you over. But they decorate literally the day that the first day of spring, everything winter goes away and everything flowery and it's wonderful. When you're in their home, you don't have to look outside to know what season it is. Perhaps you know a few people like this. Um, I, I myself am not an over-decorator. I let my wife decorate. But man, and when I say man, I mean man, men, mankind, men and women, uh, human beings create uh, decoration around the things that take place in their world. When it's Christmas time, you might see people, they, uh, they, they recreate a, or they fabricate a false reality, which is just a symbol of the true reality. For example, have you ever seen they have the, in the spray cans that you can buy uh, fake frost that you then put on glass windows or car windows? That's ridiculous. If you live in Ohio, it's going to happen. Uh, my windows are single-pane windows, and on the inside of my windows at home, there is ice uh, on the front door. Uh, we need new windows. But needless to say, man recreates elements of, those, uh, of the world around us in our space, in our time. Uh, it's, it's part of our nature to decorate. It's mostly part of uh, womankind. Uh, but some men are involved in it. But we do this to our schools, churches. It happens all the time. Uh, just look at any time in Thanksgiving. If you go into any elementary school in the United States, there, there most likely will be some sort of board and there will be turkeys and pumpkins stapled up to the board. It happens. We decorate. And so one of the ways in which, as the church has understood the Gospels, 
she has set up particular times and seasons by which we remember the world around us. And the world around us is not just the natural world which we see, but, but rather it is the things which God has done. The, as the earth goes through season in, season out, winter, spring, summer, fall, uh, the, the decoration kind of attends to that. But likewise, we as Christians believe that the things that God has done in redemptive history are more reality-defining than the tilt axis of the earth and where we are around our trip around the sun. The times that we have set up, Lent, Easter, uh, Epiphany, uh, the regular time, Christmas, Advent, those are more world-defining, more reality-defining than uh, just what's going on with the weather. The pagans, they celebrate only the seasons, but for the Christians, we believe that what God has done is more world-defining. It's more important. And so we utilize the created order to give glory to God, right? And every element of worship, whether you know it or not, is that. Uh, we sang songs this morning. We used instruments that were made out of wood and metal. Uh, men had to dig in the ground to get that metal and then turn it into strings and speakers and electricity. We utilize the world around us in order to give glory to God. So likewise, decoration, celebration, seasons, we are harnessing those days uh, because he's the ancient of days. He's the Lord over time. So Lent is a season of remembrance. Uh, it's a season of repentance. And uh, we have understood that he is vitally important in our remembrance of days. The way that we observe, the way that we keep time is marked by the Lord Jesus, not just by the rotation of the earth around a ball of uh, helium and hydrogen explosion. It, it is the way that God has set up the time-space world that we live on, the planet that we live on, that we would be able to utilize the seasons in a right way. The, the reason Christmas is set in the winter is because that is the darkest time, and then after the, the solstice a few days later, then we have Christmas because light is breaking into the world. And from that day through the rest of the year, light just gets brighter and brighter. Likewise, Lent is placed at a particular time. It's placed, although you may not be able to tell with the weather around us, this is the beginning of spring. It's coming. And so Lent is placed at the beginning of spring because this is the we, we're trying to utilize the the new growth of spring to remind us of the resurrection what happens every year when when i i own a lot of trees i have tiny trees and some of them don't look alive but i guarantee if as long as they didn't get uh in a drought over the winter, that come springtime, there will be a new sign of life where there's just, it just looks like there's death. And so we use Lent at the right time in the year to remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's we're we're heading out of winter and into a new season. So Lent, if you're un unaware or unfamiliar with it, um, it's just a, a word that comes from the German. I don't know the German word. It's probably very similar, but it just means Easter. Uh, or it just means spring, rather. Um, excuse me. And that that idea that that Lent is at the right time in this in the season. It just it's just the idea that the days are getting better, the days are getting warmer. There's new life. There's new growth. So Lent started on Ash Wednesday. We didn't have a service this year. Maybe one year we will. But if you if you weren't uh, at any sort of celebration, that doesn't. It's not. That's not that important. You didn't miss it. You can still partake. Lent is uh, a period of 40 liturgical days, that is, every day in the week except for Sunday, on which we fast. 
And then from, from there, that culminates in Monday, Thursday, which is the remembrance of the Last Supper. Uh, sometimes you have, you get people together and you have a lamb, uh, lamb meal. It's a wonderful practice, uh, which you can freely organize and invite your friends and neighbors. Um, and so we are getting ready for the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're taking an intentional time. And the reason why is because so much of our celebration, the way that we live our lives is just fly by, fly by night. It's uh, you're just kind of going along with the flow. Christmas happens, Easter happens. We have you know a microsecond of of true celebration amidst a commercialization of the seasons and hijacking, and that is something that we need to war against. And so we use Lent for a particular reason. I wanted to highlight one aspect that is new to our church uh, of our worship today, and um, it is a thing called a paramount. And a paramount, if you're unaware, is an in a an adornment of a table, which is right over here. You can see it. It's purple. Uh, there's some gold uh, lettering. My wife made it, so you can thank her later. Uh, she did a wonderful work of service to the Lord in making that. But I wanted to, to just highlight that each season is decorated. It's celebrated through a particular thing. And the reason Lent and Advent are purple is they are a sign of repentance, there's a twofold nature to the, the reason why this is purple uh, that I want to highlight really briefly. Uh, purple is the color of blues, bruised flesh. Hosea 6, the, the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive us. After three, he will raise us up. The bones that he has broken will once again rejoice. Also, the Psalms speak of this idea over and over again. It's a season of repentance in which we mourn our sin, but it also has a reminder that the robe which the Romans placed upon Jesus Christ, mocking his claim as king, but we recognize that purple is the right robe for Jesus. He really is the true king. And so when you see this, it's not a meaningless symbol. It's a meaningful symbol. And I want you to remember that, that the Lord has torn us, yet he will heal us once again. There are things in your life which you will not be able to overcome, seasons of grief which you will not weather well unless you develop in your in your in your faith, an ability to remember that the Lord will uh, will join you together after rending you or tearing you. There are seasons of grief. There are seasons of loss in which we will not be prepared to weather the storm unless we celebrate and remember these times of repentance in a right way. So I just want to commend you that this isn't. It's not a weird thing. It's not something that you have to get uh, overly introspective about. It's just a season by which we take time to prepare well for Easter. So I want to really quickly, briefly touch on each element uh, of the temptations which Christ faced for, uh, faced for us. And this season of Lent is a recapitulation. It's a remembrance of the 40 days that Jesus Christ fasted in the wilderness. And, and so this, this, uh, this season that we're in is beginning with uh, this passage, just like when we began Epiphany, it opened with the baptism of Jesus Christ and it ended with the transfiguration. So also this season opens with a particular passage, a particular story. It's the account of Jesus defeating the devil over 40 days. Uh, and finally on the last day, which we see in great detail, overcoming every one of his temptations. And these things tell us about the nature of temptation that you and I face day in and day out. 
The nature of temptation that we face is, of course, not new. It's not unique to you. Uh, but rather, it's the nature of all temptation. God placed Adam and Eve in a wonderful garden. He created a place. He set up boundaries. He set up edges, uh, borders, and he put Adam and Eve in a garden, an act of grace. He made a place for them. And not only was that an act of grace, but Adam was given a bride, Eve, and that was an act of grace. And so God gives them grace, and then he establishes just one law, one particular boundary, which they would not, uh, should not transgress. And that boundary is set up for them so that he would be able to see whether they would obey his law or not. And he wished to train them up and eventually bring them into maturity. There is no reward without a choice, right? You cannot give someone a reward. You can't give someone a blessing unless they choose between one of two options. You don't reward just regular behavior. Uh, although maybe if, if you are a, a grade school teacher, you may have a difference of opinion, but I don't like giving everyone in the class a star for just being at school that day. I want to I reward those who are doing excellent. You know, I don't, I don't want to play on a team where everyone gets the trophy for just playing. I want to give the, the winners a trophy because it celebrates. It, it makes something special. So God is, is set up Adam and Eve in this garden, and he's going to give them the reward of true eternal life. And we see those two trees in the garden, and they choose to transgress the law. And the reason they transgress is because they bought into the temptation. The temptation is a particular uh, scheme that the enemy has set up so that you would begin to doubt God's word and doubt God's will and that you would transgress his word and his will in order to exalt your word and your will. That is the nature, essentially, of every temptation that you face, and you will be greatly armed to combat trans, uh, temptation if you are, are thinking about it in that framework. What is the enemy doing? What is, he, what is the deceit in what he's trying uh, to get me to buy into? The temptation that they faced was to circumvent God's timing and to seize what was off limits, right? They transgress, they go over, it's a trespass. They go over a boundary which God had set up because they began to believe their word over his. Satan's only trick that he has in his uh, playbook is to entice you to take something that is either illicit or uh, in in essence, illegal for you to have, uh, or an illegitimate pleasure. And that illegitimate pleasure, because Satan is not creative, is not something that he can manufacture, but rather it is only something which God has, for a time, prevented you from taking. And if you begin to see sin as a transgression of a boundary, and, and then you also remember that it's right to honor the Lord, I believe you'll be greatly uh, assisted in your attempt to uh, to walk out your holiness. So we're going to see how Jesus Christ in each of these uh, examples here uses the word of God and his understanding of the will of God to combat Satan's schemes. These temptations are real temptations. Jesus Christ walks as a man in, filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and he overcomes these temptations by the word of God and understanding the will of God. Christ has a functional understanding of the love of God in his heart. We see in Mark 6 that over and over again, Christ loves to go and spend time with the Father. He's developed an understanding in his life of the joy of righteousness 
And he's seen all around him the sin and depression and sadness of those who walk in unrighteousness. And so Jesus Christ is not just utilizing the the word of God. It's not as if you could just read the Bible and then become perfect, but rather it's an incarnated word. It's a word that's taken flesh uh, in him, even as he is the word of God. So we're going to see how that framework of illicit pleasure at the wrong time is the nature of every temptation that happens to Jesus. And without that framework, I think it's impossible to understand at least one of the two, or one of the three temptations. The other two are, are pretty plain, but one of them wouldn't make sense without understanding that. Um, so whereas Adam has transgressed God's boundary, seizing the knowledge of good and evil, Christ, the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold power of God, demonstrates the joy found in doing God's will, and he overcomes the temptation. He only is able to overcome because he knows the joy of following righteousness, the joy of, of obeying God's will. Israel, through her 40 years and wandering in the wilderness, demonstrates that she is going to be unfaithful to Yahweh. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when Moses is giving a summary of why they've been wandering, it says God did this to test you in order that he would see whether it was in your heart to obey his word or his law or not. And so likewise, the, the 40 days which uh, it, Jesus uh, fasts in the wilderness is a redoing, it's a reproving of the 40 years that Israel failed in the wilderness. So this, this particular season is wonderful, both in its literary beauty and the way that we remember it. Jesus, through his 40 days of, de- of temptation, proves that he upholds Yahweh's Torah. And the reason why I use Yahweh's Torah there is to just make it plain. Every time that Jesus overcomes the temptation of Satan, he does so by quoting Deuteronomy. And if you have no place in your theology for Deuteronomy having any meaning to you, you cannot overcome Satan's temptations. Because the New Testament, if you take a look at the side profile of your Bible, is about one-eighth of the space, maybe one-fifth of the space of the total scripture. Without understanding God's word, you will be unable to overcome temptation. So Jesus demonstrates how we overcome temptation by God's word. Each of these temptations that Christ faces they each speak of the nature of all temptation, which is to doubt God's word and the goodness of God's will to take matters into our own hands. He is tempted in each case to prove his identity, as we'll see, as the Son of God. And that is how you are tempted as well. The temptations, although although the devil may not come and whisper into your ear, as he did in this situation where Satan was really present speaking to Christ, the temptations which you face, though they may not be demonstrated as such a heinous uh, event are these same things, to doubt God's word, to doubt the goodness of his will, and to take matters into your own hands. So let's look at these. Satan first challenges Christ's identity and his authority to make to take matters into his own hands in the first place. I want you, you to understand that, that Jesus Christ did not go into the wilderness because Satan was like at the border of the wilderness and Jesus was like, you know, tricked into going or he was going after Satan as if he was hunting him down. This isn't why Jesus goes into the wilderness. What does it say? Verse 1, Luke 4, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan, this is after his baptism, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to fast for 40 days. It is the Holy Spirit leading Jesus Christ 
into the wilderness. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So we know that the Father and the Spirit are always in harmony along with the Son. The Holy Spirit reveals to Jesus Christ, Son of God, uh, in that moment that the Father and the Spirit wish for him to go into the wilderness to fast. The commandment to make a stone out of bread isn't an arbitrary, or sorry, the temptation to turn a stone into bread is not an arbitrary temptation. And it's not even a temptation to just simply give in to his hunger, but rather it's a temptation to stop walking by the spirit and to walk according to the flesh. And therefore we see how this harmonizes with all of Paul's doctrines concerning how we are supposed to walk. He says, do not walk according to the flesh because if you walk according to the flesh, you must die, but rather walk according to the spirit. Those who sow in the spirit, they'll receive and they'll reap life and peace. And so here, Jesus Christ is, the temptation is that he doesn't trust that God will bring him out of this period of fasting. If he is led by the spirit, and he's led into this fast, surely his trust must be on following the Spirit until it is time for him to end it. Notice the element of the temptation in verse 3. It says, if you are the Son of God. The temptation that Satan poses to Christ is one to demonstrate his own authority and his own power, rather than to be submitted to the authority of God. And in a way, that is exactly our temptations as well. The temptation to wield divine power to provide for his own needs is a sin of doubt because he must necessarily doubt the goodness of the Holy Spirit's leading into this period of fasting should he end it without the Spirit's blessing. So Jesus answers and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8. God gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness so that they would realize that the the life that they have comes from him, not from them. And so Jesus overcomes the temptation because he says that his, as he testifies elsewhere, his food is to do the Father's will, right? And so Jesus demonstrates the the true uh, relationship that he has with the Holy Spirit and with the Father by understanding that his life Uh, the life source that he has, the the source of his life, is God more than it is bread. Surely this is an element of our focus during Lent. We live in a culture, in a world that is so natural, it's it's very focused on, on things that we can see and observe with our senses, and so little thought is given to our needs as spiritual beings, as people with souls. We need to desperately encounter the Spirit of God, if we are to truly live. You do not live just by eating, but rather by eating the words of God, by fellowshipping with God in a true communion. Christ knows this because he's experienced this throughout his life, and he knows that the source of life is not food. This is so important. If you are fasting this season and you've become so obsessed with the particulars of your fast, oh, I'm doing a modified Daniel fast and only eating salt on Saturdays or something like that, you, you're missing the point. I hear so much murmuring and, and everybody going around and whispering, oh, what are you doing for Lent? What? I don't want you to tell me what you're doing for Lent because if you're not... If you're not uh, going after the heart of God in your fast, then you're missing the point. The point is not that Jesus is fasting as if to overcome his body, as if we're Gnostic believers that the physical world is bad and all spiritual stuff is good. He's overcoming the tendency to forget God, 
to to not uh, interact with our maker and our creator. If you are fasting, but you're not actually using that time to have communion with the Lord, you're not really fasting. That You're just not eating. And uh, you probably should re-examine your, your thought. I'm not telling you to stop fasting because you're doing it wrong. I'm saying re-examine what the point of the fast is. Keeping the fast of Lent without engaging in a communion with God in a real way, whether it's prayer, the Word of God, spending time with other believers in a Bible study, something like that. If you're not utilizing that time to really commune with the Lord, then you are not fasting. So Jesus understands that his fast is to remind himself that his life is not natural alone. And it, it's amazing when you, if you've never fasted before, the first few times that you fast, a few days into it, you're like, wow, I'm still going. Everything in my life is normally, you know, ends. If you unplug something, it dies right away. If you don't recharge something, the batteries go away. It's amazing when you start to say like, oh, wow, I'm two or three days into this and I haven't had any input. There's been no, oh, wow, I've got all this other input that's available to me. Uh, in terms of fat storage. It's a wonderful experience if you've never uh, seen. But you will not die if you don't eat something for a few hours. And so much of our culture is just focused on what's the next thing to shove into your mouth. It's, that's, that is what most advertising is. What's the next thing for you to consume? And Jesus is saying, I don't need to consume. I have a source of life that is more real than the natural. And, and that is not, uh, that's not a Gnosticism. That is, that's true reality. You are not just a natural being. Our age says that you are nothing more than protoplasm and a little bit of biological processes that we can understand under a microscope. You are more than just a biological being. You have a soul. You were made to commune with God. And to do that is important. It's vital. It's more important than eating. That's what Jesus testifies about. So if you've got that uh, backwards in your life, it may be helpful to take a time of fasting to reorient yourself to the nature of, of who you are as God made you. You are a spiritual being. So Jesus demonstrates his, uh, his faith in overcoming this temptation. And then the devil, it doesn't, he doesn't give up right away. Uh, the enemy still uses this strategy and uh, it, it, it vitally impacts us. The devil, being unsuccessful at this point, tries a deeper temptation that Christ would receive the kingdoms of the world before the proper time and without going to the cross. The temptations that that Satan offers you and me, and in this passage, Jesus Christ, they're real temptations. And they're real temptations to take something illicit, at least before the proper time, or uh, within a proper understanding of the nature of the joy found in the temptation, or in the thing that would be uh, the tempted uh, debate. So Jesus Christ is going to receive the glory of the kings of the, the earth, but Satan here offers a, uh, an, a receipt of glory without any cross. This is exactly what you and I face day in, day out. Verse five, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I love special effects. If you ever become a movie producer, I'd love to see what this scene looks like. Because what Satan is essentially doing is he is, because he, you know, is he's a spiritual being and, and so are you, he is in some way encounters Christ in this scene and he shows that him all the kingdoms of this world. I don't know what that looks like, but I know the, the scripture does not lie. And so there is something amazing going on. Jesus Christ, at least in the spirit, is 
surveying all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil who usurped the authority over the created world, which he took from Adam in the garden, has the ability to hand over in a, in a feign way, in a, in a fake way, all the kingdoms of the world to Christ without going to the cross. This is a temptation and it's a real temptation. So this temptation here is that he would bow down and worship Satan and that in exchange for that, he would receive glory and all the nations of the world will turn to him. Just so you are aware, that is the goal of the cross. The goal of Jesus Christ's life and passion was to bring the kingdom of God into the world and to live as God's servant. That's the great understanding from the major prophets, especially Isaiah. So it's not just to bring a cross and be king, but also to be God's servant. Those are two identical uh, elements of the Old Testament prophecies. So the temptation that Satan presents to him is to not be Yahweh's servant, but still be the king. It's the temptation that Jesus Christ would not have to go through the cross in order to receive glory. One day, according to the promises given to Abraham by Yahweh, all the families of the earth will be blessed and all will stream to Christ. As we see, the nations will bring glory and gold to him. And also uh, in, all the, in many Psalms and, and most of the minor prophets, the coastlands and shores will see the glory of God. That is the goal of Christ's life. And therefore, that is a real temptation that he would receive all the kingdoms. But the temptation is that he would obtain this glory apart from the Father. Illicit bread that is eaten, just the previous temptation, illicit bread that is eaten without the blessing of heaven is a grace or an attempt to obtain life outside of God. Likewise, this is a temptation to obtain glory outside of God's will. Whether it be vainglory of self-promotion, the haughtiness of justifying our actions before others, or the flattering talk that we often use to curry favor. Have you ever done that? You, you tell someone how great they are, and then you ask them for something. It's a wonderful trick. Uh, the temptation that we have every day to avoid our crosses and yet still obtain glory, it's, that's the same temptation here. You face this all the time. We often bow down to idols instead of serving the Lord alone. We, we set up in a practical way uh, conveniences which, uh, by which we avoid crosses in our life. Whether it's not really telling that brother or sister that you sinned against, that you sinned against them, or just kind of permitting bitterness in part of your life, or, or attempting to cheat your employer by not being a good employee and wasting your time. Whatever it is, you are avoiding crosses all the time. And they are unknown to you in, in many cases, but I want to, to encourage you that it is only by taking up your cross and denying yourself, as we saw and mentioned last week, that you can be a disciple of Christ. It is not optional to run away from the cross. You have to go through it. And so Jesus knows this, and he knows it is God's will. He knows why God has sent him to the earth, and so he overcomes by uh, the word of God. <clears throat> uh, Satan, again, is unsuccessful, and he uh, then finally, this is the one that I had mentioned. It's pretty confusing to understand, unless you understand the uh, framework that every temptation is to, uh, at its root, is a temptation to doubt God's word, to doubt the goodness of his will, and the uh, attempt to, or the desire to take something into your own hands. This final temptation doesn't make sense unless you kind of uh, do a little bit of digging around the words um, to understand what's going on. 
knowing that the promise of God's provision uh, for Christ would be that he would be unveiled to all Israel through his resurrection and the preaching which would be done by his apostles after the resurrection, the temptation that he is given here is to throw himself down from the temple. Now, we're going to look at the text in just a second, but basically the idea is that uh, God had given some promises, and Satan, because he's looking for a loophole, spends all of his time attempting to manipulate the scriptures and to find some, you know, some way out. He he posits to Jesus a uh, temptation which would allow him to be glorified in Israel without, again, the cross. Christ being attended by angels at this moment, right? If if the Lord should throw him down, God would send angels lest he dash his foot against a stone. Uh, Christ would have been openly displayed as carrying divine authority, and everyone would have seen it because this is place, taking place at the temple. This isn't a remote. Uh, some of the Bible movies, if you ever watch a Bible movie, they get this totally wrong uh, because they're at the temple, and everyone's that's the center of Jerusalem. There's people all around. It would be as if when the Lord is on the cross, he says, if, it, if I asked for it, I would have a legion of angels at my side. He doesn't openly do that because... Uh, the nature of Jesus Christ as the Messiah is a revelation given from heaven, not a physical uh, manifestation of angelic authority. So that is the way, it, it doesn't make much sense. Like if you said to me, hey, John, jump off this building, like that is not a temptation. I hate high things. I don't, I kind of want to go skydiving, but I'm really, I'm never going to do it because I'm scared of heights. This isn't a temptation unless you understand that it would have a dramatic effect there would be undeniable witnesses in the numbers of hundreds or thousands who would have heard or seen Jesus Christ being attended to by angels should he jump off the temple. But that's not a temptation for you or I. So Luke 4 verses 9 and then verse 12 and 13, and he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus answered and said to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There is always an opportune time. You will face temptation in the future. Should you overcome temptation today by God's grace, uh, rejoice in that moment, but also take uh, take heed lest you fall again. There is an opportune time, and Jesus demonstrates that through the word of God, through an understanding of God's will, and also by the power of the Holy Spirit, temptations can be overcome. You will never overcome every temptation in your life, but the point of this season of Lent is not that you uh, get all depressed about the fact that you've fallen in temptation in the past, nor is it even an attempt to make yourself perfect. Rather, it's an attempt uh, it's a season by which we intentionally put these things into our life, that we take time to realize we are not just a cog in a wheel in our culture of, of you know, taking input and producing output. You are not just a natural being who needs food. You need to commune with God. You are not someone who needs to take matters into your own hands. You can trust him. And that's the nature of this temptation that we face. This temptation is played out in our lives whenever we are tempted to take matters into our own hands, to accelerate a process that God wants to go slow, or to seize something which shouldn't be ours, to manipulate God in some way. It's God's will to demonstrate the wisdom and power of God in a way that looks foolish and weak. That's the way that God wishes to demonstrate his power and wisdom through the 
the cross of Christ. And that looks like a bloody death on a cross in which it seems that his enemies overcame. Isn't it, isn't it the case that if you just looked in the natural at the cross, that it would be the most foolish thing in the world? That Jesus Christ is, is claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming to have divine authority. And yet he can't even do anything about some Roman soldiers taking him and putting him on a tree. That Jesus Christ defeats the powers of darkness by dying a bodily death is unthinkable. And without faith, it, it's impossible to believe it. And so the manifold wisdom of God is shown in things that seem foolish. Likewise, Lent doesn't seem like a good idea. I'm going to take some time to initially seek after God or intentionally seek after God. And I'm, I'm going to abstain from valid, legitimate pleasures, not because they're wrong, but because I need to, to develop a, a communion with the Lord. That seems like a foolish idea. But Jesus Christ demonstrates over and over again that it is wisdom to follow God's word. It is not wisdom to follow your understanding. And these things, although they may not make sense initially, by faith we know they're true. It's not necessary that you understand why Jesus said what he said in each circumstance, but it is necessary that you would develop a life with the Lord that you could say, yeah, Jesus' testimony is right. I know enough to know that. And so in this season of Lent, I don't want you to become so focused on looking for sin in your life because you are not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You're not your own Holy Spirit. So you can't just get all internal and focus on the problems in your life and, and then eradicate every one of them in a systematic fashion. That's not what Lent's about. What Lent is about is a, it's about an intentional time by which we pursue the Lord. Christ over and over again disarms Satan by showing the source of his delight in submitting to the Father's will. And that, that touches on every aspect of our lives, doesn't it? There are things day in and day out that we are anxious over, that we attempt to make happen when it's not God's timing. And those are our attempts, if we could, to manipulate God. Every time that you're fretting and worrying concerning the future, you're provoking the Lord's jealousy because what you're saying is that the sovereign God is not going to treat you right in the future and you must do something about it. That's the nature of anxiety, worry, and an attempt to act on our own uh, initiative. And Jesus Christ over and over again shows us the wisdom and the beauty of submitting to the Father's will. The fasting and the trials that Jesus encounters in the wilderness, again, as we said, they recapitulate the temptations that Adam and Eve experienced. And what I mean by recapitulate, that's just a fancy word to say that Christ, by doing these things, demonstrates that he really is the son of God. Adam, as God's son, I use air quotes just so the people on the tape can hear, as God's son or God's ruler, uh, Adam demonstrated that he would not follow God's word. And yet Christ demonstrates that he will. Likewise, the nation of Israel rebelled against God. And Jesus Christ, the true Israelite, shows that he will uphold God's word. He will uphold the Torah. And so Jesus is demonstrating this for your benefit and for mine. And indeed, we've seen time in and time out in every season that this was a strategic defeat of Satan. We have seen how in the breaking in of light into the world at Christmas, Christ defeated the enemy. And also, we know very well, this is probably the most concrete example that we have, that Christ defeated the enemy at the cross. 
That is, he reconciled us to God and also put the, the rulers of this age to an open shame, as Colossians teaches. And we also know that Christ in his resurrection defeats death. But I want to explain to you and, and really highlight that in Jesus Christ overcoming the temptations in the wilderness that he faced, which we remember at Lent, uh, that is a defeat of Satan in order that he would demonstrate there can be true disciples. There can be human beings filled with God's word, filled with God's spirit, who overcome the temptations of the evil one. And that is what Lent is all about. So do not despair when you see these sins in your life. Don't despair mainly because it's not up to you to overcome them. That is not where your faith lies. It lies in the fact that Christ has defeated Satan already. And because he's defeated Satan, you can defeat Satan. It is not you defeating Satan in order to get into the club where in which Christ's victory has meaning for you. Because Christ has a victory, he offers it to you by faith. And that's what we celebrate. Just as Moses fasted for 40 days before the giving of the law, Jesus Christ fasts for 40 days again before he brings the new law as the fulfillment of Ezekiel is made plain, that God would give us new hearts by which he would write his law upon them by his Holy Spirit. Not only will Christ bring the new law, he's the one to bring the spirit, which we see after Easter in the time of Ascension and Pentecost. Jesus Christ here is demonstrating that he's making a new people. Though we're brought low during Lent, it's not a time for despair or a woe is me mentality. If you're focusing on yourself in Lent, you need to fast and repent. It's, that's not what the season's about. It's not about your problems. It's not about your sins. It's about communing with the Lord and intentionally seeking him and removing anything in your life that gets in the way of true fellowship. That can be food. That can be relationships. I don't care. You don't have to announce on Facebook for the rest of this month and the next. I'm not going to be on Facebook because I'm fasting. You don't need to do that. What you need to do is you need to remove the things in your life which keep you from fellowshipping with God. That's what fasting in Lent's about. It's not about getting... Uh, really focused on yourself. Because the point is that Christ has come and he defeated Satan. That's what our faith celebrates. It doesn't celebrate some sort of uh, religious pharisaical approach by which we attempt to justify ourselves. It is the, the proclamation that Christ has overcome, therefore you have overcome, and you will overcome in the future. That's what we celebrate. If we're to celebrate Lent well this season, let's not celebrate it in hoping to establish or prove our relationship with God, but rather by relying on the knowledge of God's favorable disposition towards us. What I mean by that is God is 100% for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You do not have to earn his favor, nor can you, but you can prevent it from being real to you by attempting to earn it. It's kind of a paradox. If you try to get it, you can't. If you know that you can't get it, you do. It's a wonderful thing. In that knowledge and hope, let's cast aside every other crutch that keeps us from the love and knowledge of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us a mighty sense of the importance of this season. Lord, help us to uh, not reject those things which are, are good for us, but also, Lord, help us to uh, rightly understand that it's not about us, not in this season, really, nor ever, but it's about you. It's, it's about the fact that you have conquered the, the evil one and that through conquering the evil one, you opened up a way. Yes, it's narrow. Yes, it is hard to enter. Yes, it's a, it's a small gate and we have to 
go extremely low to enter it, Lord, but we do know it is true, it is real. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from the broad way which leads to destruction. God, I ask that in this season you would give us right motives for fasting, that if we are um, abstaining from things, valid, even legitimate things, that that we would in, instead put in place uh, practices and 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 uh, practical ways of, of communing with you. Lord, we ask that you would give us a joy in this season, that it would not just be uh, somber, but it would also be somewhat joyful in that while, while we feel the, the pain of, of removing invalid things or, or illicit things or things that we overemphasize, we would still encounter the joy of righteousness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.